0: part five of the highwayman by h c bailey this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter fourteen spectators of paradise in the old house on the hill mrs weston sat alone she was looking out of the oriel window at a garden of wintry emptiness and wind-swept the westerly gale roared and moaned the heavy earth was sodden and beaten into hollows and pools through which broke tiny pale points of snowdrops away beyond the first terrace of lawn the roses bowed and tossed wild arms a silvery gleam of sunlight fell on the turf glistened and was gone mrs weston sat with her hands in her lap and her needle at rest in a half-worked piece of linen a veil of languor had fallen upon the wistfulness of her face her bosom hardly stirred the sound of the opening door broke her dream and she picked up her work and began to sew eagerly it was susan burford who came in royally neat in her riding habit for all the storm she walked in her leisurely spacious fashion to mrs weston who started and stood up laughing nervously indeed alison will be pleased you are kind i know she has been longing to see you susan laughed and a large young goddess of health stooped to kiss the worn face you always talk about somebody else are you pleased my dear mrs weston protested you know i am we match very well you never want to talk and i never have anything to say susan sat down and for some time the only sound was from mrs weston's needle at last you are still here then susan said my dear why not indeed oh but you would always stay by alison if she needed you why she never has needed me and now less than ever oh susan considered that and is he kind to you mrs weston flushed indeed he has been very good to me That is all I wanted to ask you, said Susan, and again there was silence. After a while, Mrs. Weston dropped her sewing and looked anxiously at Susan. Have you ever seen him? Only his back. He used to keep in the corners at Tetherdown. I suppose people talk about him? I don't listen, said Susan. People are always in such a hurry I can't keep up. "'I suppose you think Alison was in a great hurry.' "'Only Alison knows about that.' "'Yes.' "'Mrs. Weston looked at her with affectionate admiration, "'as though she had been endowed with rare understanding of the human heart. "'Do you know you are the only one of the people Alison liked? "'Who has come here since?' "'Oh,' Susan's favorite eloquent reply, "'I don't mind about people.' he doesn't mind at all she doesn't mind yet what is that you are working said susan but indeed they are most perfectly happy said mrs weston in a hurry is it for a tucker said susan in a great hurry mrs weston began to explain she was still at it when alison and harry came back they too had been riding The storm had granted alison none of susan's majestic neatness she looked a wild creature of the hills her wet habit clinging about her black ringlets broken loose curling about her brown eyes fierce with life and all the dainty colors of her face very clear and bright she saw susan and cried out oh my child i love you susan rose leisurely to her majestic height and smiled down upon her i think you are the loveliest thing that ever was made said she alison laughed and they kissed i am quite of your mind ma'am said harry or i was he made susan a bow till this moment i was going to ask her if she was happy sir susan said i shan't ask her she held out her hand but i want you to ask me a thousand things "'Alison put an arm around her. "'Come away, come. "'At least I am going to tell you.' "'She shot a wicked glance at Harry. "'Everything.' "'Off they went. "'What's this mean, ma'am?' "'Harry stood over Mrs. Weston. "'Is our wise Sir John sending to spy out the land? "'I wish you would not talk so,' Mrs. Weston shivered. "'It is like your father. "'Oh, sure. "'You have no need to be suspicious of everyone.' suspicious faith i don't trouble myself harry laughed all the world may go hang for me but you'll not expect me to believe in it i think you need fear no one's ill will you are fortunate enough now miraculously beyond my deserts ma'am as you say but there's the wisdom of twenty years shabbiness in me and i wonder if the good sir john wants to be meddling you need not be shabby now "'Lord, I bear him no malice, for he can do naught. "'Only I would not have him plague Alison.' "'At last Mrs. Weston smiled upon him. i you are very careful of her. "'I vow I would not so insult her,' Harry laughed. "'But you need not be afraid. "'Susan is here for herself. "'She is like that. "'She is the most independent woman ever I knew. "'She has come because she loves Alison.' Why, then, I love her, and, egad, it will be easy. She's a splendid piece. Mrs. Weston gave him an anxious glance. She is very loyal, said she, with some emphasis. It's a virtue. To be sure, it's a virtue of the stupid, Harry cocked a teasing eye at her. And I, well, ma'am, you wouldn't call me stupid. I don't think it clever to jeer at what's good and true and noble egad ma'am you are parental harry grinned you will be talking to me like a mother and a stern mother i protest am i stern mrs weston looked at him with eyes penitent and tender only to yourself i think Lord, ma'am why take me to heart what now harry alison and susan close linked came back again whose heart are you taking why madame's said harry with a flourish "'You see, ma'am,' he turned to Susan, "'I've a gift for making folks cry.' "'Oh, like an onion,' says she, in her slow, grave fashion. "'Susan, dear, how perfect!' Alison laughed. "'Now I know why I am growing tired of him. "'A little, you know, was piquant. "'But a whole onion to myself, God help us.' "'Yet your onion goes well with a goose,' Harry said. "'Alack, Harry!' "'But there's nothing sage about you and me.' "'Oh, fie, see there she sits, our domestic sage.' He waved at Mrs. Weston. "'To be sure we couldn't do without her,' Alison caressed the grey hair. "'I must be riding, Alison,' Susan said. Alison began to protest affectionate hospitality. Harry shook his head. "'I have warned you of this, Alison.' "'We are too conjugal. "'It embarrasses the polite.' I AM NOT EMBARRASSED, SAID SUSAN, WITH HER PLACID GRAVITY, I WANT TO COME AGAIN. BY THE FIFTH OR SIXTH TIME, MA'AM, I MAY FEEL THAT I AM FORGIVEN. I HAVE NOTHING TO FORGIVE YOU, MR. BOYCE. THEN YOU CAN DO IT THE MORE heartily." HARRY SMILED AND HELD OUT HIS HAND. OH! THERE WAS A FAINT SHADOW OF A BLUSH. I DID NOT THINK I SHOULD LIKE YOU, SHE TURNED. I BEG YOUR PARDON, ALISON i beg ma'am you'll come teach my wife to be kind she also is frank but for kindness well we are all sinners there it is mr boyce said susan holding out her hand and when she was gone now why did i not marry her first said harry pensively because she would never have married you child being of those who like the man to ask as susan rode down the north slope of the hill she was met by mr hadley gaunt upon a white horse like death in the revelation the comparison did not occur to susan who had a fresh mind but she did think white unbecoming to mr hadley and said gurgling where did you find that horse or why did you find it he was a bad debt but he has a great soul and don't prevaricate susan where have you been mr hadley bent his sardonic brows to gossip with Alison. Adzo, i guess you would turn traitor no i haven't turned at all mr hadley she has declared war on us your dear father fizzes and fumes like a grenade all day and you go gossip with her it's flat treason miss come did you tell sir john you were going no but he would guess. He is so clever about me, like you. Humph! If he guesses you're a woman, it's all he does, and damn, I suppose it's enough. So your curious sex, bad you go and pry. Well, and what did you see in Mr. Harry Boyce? I suppose you are scolding me, said Susan placidly, with all my heart. Oh, why do you ride that horse? Damn, miss, don't wriggle. "'You had no business at Highgate. "'He looks as if he had the gout.' "'Mr. Hadley grinned. "'But as you went, let's hear what you saw.' "'I always loved Alison. "'Your business is to love your father, Susan, "'till some other man asks you. "'I love her better now. "'She is so happy.' "'Damn her impudence,' said Mr. Hadley. "'Why did you lose your temper with her? "'I never lose my temper with anyone.' but you well you made my father lose his odd's life susan don't you know it's a man's right to tell women how they ought to live dear alison wouldn't listen susan laughed she has made you look very foolish if she has i'll forgive her oh you do then said susan on your honour miss what do you think of mr harry boyce i wondered alison should love him Odds life, yes, but what's this you're saying? He is so quiet and simple. Simple? Damn, the fellow's an incarnate mask. Oh, I think I know all about him. I never thought I knew all about Alison. She wants so much. And she hasn't got all she wants, hey? Yes, I believe, said Susan, after a moment. Pray God you're right. Oh, I like to hear you say that. You have been so for once her placid words stumbled so sordid about this damn susan don't be a saint mr hadley grinned they die virgins chapter fifteen mrs boyce it was a time of wild plots the long war of marlborough had left england impregnably triumphant and france ambitious of nothing but peace no fear remained that foreign arms would carry james the pretender by right divine to his sister's throne who should reign when anne's growing weakness ended in death was for england alone to decide and english law gave the succession to prince george of hanover but there was a party or at least the leaders of a party who saw more profit to themselves in importing the pretender harley and bolingbroke they had thrust out of the queen's confidence and the government the friends of hanover they had undermined the authority of marlborough at home and abroad and were now ready honorably or dishonorably to put an end to the war which made him necessary if he were dispatched into ignominy or exile there could be no one strong enough they believed to prevent them driving england the way they chose what that way would be no one clearly knew themselves perhaps least of all but together and singly they set going many strange secret schemes which were to make a new king a new england and new magnificence for themselves singly or together all which the mass of england watched with shrewd and curious eyes it could not long be a secret that plots were afoot to shoulder out of power all who were committed friends of the lawful order was a confession of designs against it as if that were not enough bolingbroke and harley so managed their business that everything they did was wrapped in a mist of trickery and intrigue and yet though they were vastly mysterious over what could have borne the light without much shame they contrived to let the agents of their deeper treachery blunder into notice and fill the air with rumours of untimely truth still england gave no sign under which king hanoverian or pretender perhaps there were few in england who cared if the pretender was bred french and a papist prince george was a german born some of those who had joined heartily in driving out his father began to put it about that the son would be a better king for that lesson george of hanover had the right of law but the parliament of to-morrow might undo what the parliament of yesterday had done who could be ardent for the right of an unknown foreigner over england and few were ardent but there were many who caring nothing for pretender or hanoverian had a solid resolution that england should not be torn in the cause of either whatever was done must be done quietly and in good order since it seemed that the hanoverian had no need to change anything in law or state or church best that he should be king as for the devious politics the tricks and the mystery of harley and bolingbroke they were of no account to plain men there was yet another party not content to watch and wait till the plotters lost themselves in their own mysteries the men whom harley and bolingbroke had driven from power had no mind to submit to impotence they well knew what they wanted the hanoverian the lawful limited king upon the throne and themselves as his ministers they were not delicate about the means they used since there were treason and plots they too turned their hands to plotting and with a vigor and ruthless resolution of which the other camp was innocent so the wise and eminent were busy while harry boyce and his alison made trial of their marriage harry lived in a dream of bewildered happiness he had counted on nothing but the need of his passion hoped for nothing but its ecstasy in her beauty and at its wildest the strain of gloom in him had bade him dread what lay beyond she gave him a miracle of mad delight a new force of life was born in him while he enjoyed her joy it was a discovery of intoxicating power that he could wake that rare consummate creature to such eager exultation as his own in those wonderful hours it seemed that they passed out of themselves into a world where every part of their being was one and in the happiness of unbounded strength so passion and she kept faith with him and something more but the miracle of passion in her arms had less enchantment than the joy of the quiet hours. It was with this that she bewildered him. Before she yielded to him, he would have jeered at the hope that she might bring the gift of peace in her bosom. As the first days of marriage passed, he learned that all his placid loneliness had been the mere endurance of hunger. He had stayed himself with the husk of life, she satisfied him with the fruit for she too could be calm delighting in the little daily things utterly happy with nonsense to share all that with her was to find in it a strange lulling enchantment of content his fortune seemed too good to be real for he possessed all that ever fancy had pretended was worth coveting. His life was a perfect happiness. No doubts from within, no troubles from without, had power to assail him. All the old, reasonable, practical fears were become ludicrous cowardice, only remembered for Alison to tease with. As for other people, and what they said and thought and did, some folks were kind and were welcome no folks were of account he and she deliciously sufficed themselves and there was no dread of change save in age and death infinitely distant and insignificant no matter but to glorify the power of life sometimes he was aware that the wonder of passion must grow faint and fail but he saw nothing which could take from him the quiet exquisite daily joys was it real or a charmed dream this perfect fortune of content indeed nothing was real in those days but the delight in being with her alison had her share he did not deceive himself she had her ecstasies and her exultations she thought herself even madder than he was and in these days perhaps Her passion was deeper and stronger than his. She was satisfied, she felt herself accomplished, and gloried in her new power, with a more profound, a more secret delight than his. She had given him eagerly all that she had, and in giving found herself more than ever her own. For all the union, the deepest, truest self in her, stood aloof in a mystery. It was not of her will, for she desired to deny him nothing. She did not reckon him weak in failing to take all of her. This must needs be the way of life. No man's passion could be stronger than his. Doubtless he too had his secret soul apart. And indeed it was glorious not to lose self in love, to stay always through the ecstasies aloof, to give always anew of will and choice, never to merge helpless in some unknown double being and become only half a body half a soul capitulating always to the rest to the other this self-glorious pride of hers gave her for a while that zest in all the trivial common things which made her a companion so delightful to harry's temper but she enjoyed them in a spirit different from his All the bread-and-butter business of living was to him delightful in itself and for itself. He was born to want no better bread than is made of wheat. She played with it, made a dainty mock of it, amused herself with it, and at the back of her mind despised it. So they lived, and you imagine Mrs. Weston's dim, wistful eyes, watching them with great tenderness, for she understood them no better than they themselves.' it was alison who first grew tired not of love or passion but of the trivialities and the quiet life at highgate she had ambitions and or thought she had it had been just rediscovered that women could be leaders in the world at least in politics and the tricks of statecraft women were the fiercest partisans and their voices powerful in the warring parties it was a woman his termagant duchess who had given marlborough his ascendancy in england made him dominate all europe it was a clever woman who had contrived marlborough's downfall and given his enemies the government of england it was a woman another duchess who beat swift you need not suspect alison who had some humor of imagining harry boyce a marlborough but he did believe him able to make a noise in the world and coveted much the sensation of owning him while the world listened. She did not see herself controlling queens and kings and parties, but she was well aware of her beauty and its power, and had a mind to use it wisely. She was hungry for excitement. So Mrs. Allison determined to set her man upon a larger, busier stage. The decree went forth that old, tom lambourne's house in the lincoln's inn fields was again to be inhabited harry was asked for his advice afterwards perhaps he would have been wiser if he had begun their first quarrel then but he was enjoying her too much to deny her her ways or her whims and he only laughed at her he was not pleased to be sure he had a taste which cannot have come from his father for copse and field he never found anything in the town which was worth the living in other folks smoke he disliked crowds and in particular crowds of fine ladies and gentlemen so with some horror he saw before him a vista of polite splendours and said so "Oh, lord sir said she if i had wanted to sleep my life away i should not have married you and if you wanted to sleep out yours you should not have married me i was born for innocence and green fields you'll make me a bull in a china shop i'll love you the better child faith harry i would be very glad to have you break something madame's heart par exemple that would be an adventure so you find them arrived in the lincoln's inn fields as the first step to the conquest of the world the world was not as excited as alison thought fit her father old tom lambourne had commanded reverence in the city and some respect even as far west as st james's by sheer weight of wealth a rare capacity for living hard had won him an army of diverse friends but neither his business nor his pleasures provided him with many who could be bequeathed to his daughter. Her mother, born a baker's daughter in Lane, having died and giving Alison birth, had left her nothing besides her admirable body but some grumbling objects of charity. It remained for Alison to make her own way in the world of fine ladies and gentlemen since she was by certain fame an heiress of great possessions her way might have been easy if she had not found herself a husband the taint of the city if she had borne herself humbly need not have made her quite intolerable to people of birth but since her money was already married she could only be reckoned as a city goodwife pretty enough indeed to be game for fine gentlemen but to fine ladies a nobody folks were slow in coming to the grand house in lincoln's inn fields slower still if they had houses of elegance to ask mrs allison back it suited harry very well he would as his wife complained go mooning across the fields to islington almost as happily as through the woods at highgate his books had almost as good a savor in town as in the country when she dragged him to hear niccolini or wilkes or the bracegirdle he could console himself by gentle jeering over the fact that in a playhouse where everybody knew everybody not a creature had a bow for him or her of course she smarted day by day he chose to affect astonishment over her failures believing with infatuated content that he was slowly driving her back to the country and sanity though he was but driving her away from him and she choosing to feel humiliated blamed him for the shame of it why child says he in his supercilious way tis not failing to be in the beau monde that's ridiculous but wanting to be to such monitions She began not to answer back, a symptom very dangerous. She set up a basset table, that, if anything could, must proclaim her a woman of fashion, a woman, indeed, who had a fancy to be a trifle daring. There's no doubt that Alison, about this time and afterwards, did want to dabble in danger. She was not her father's daughter for nothing. She encouraged high play for herself she enjoyed the excitement of it having no need to care if she lost she wanted to have about her people who affected heavy stakes believing in the innocence of her heart that they were exhilarating company so she made for herself a queer society which harry to her angry disgust defined as a mixture of sheep and wolves there were good wives and lads from the city anxious to make a jingling show with the funds of the family counting-house there were hungry beau and madame from the other end of the town seeking their fortune impudently wherever it might be found to one of these happy parties there was introduced a mrs boyce she was a faded handsome creature much jewelled about lean shoulders alison who hardly heard her name in the rout took no account of it and little of her but on the next day this mrs boyce came early and caught alison alone she began with such a fuss about apologizing for her earliness that alison set her down for an ill-bred tiresome creature she had a high voice which like the rest of her was a trifle faded i protest ma'am i have long desired to know you better alison languidly muttered something civil let me make myself known first i beg i am the niece of sir gilbert heathcote alison of course had heard of sir gilly one of the chiefs of high finance but cared nothing about him i am vastly honored ma'am i was only born thomas lambourne's daughter there is no need ma'am a long lean hand was waved i wonder if we are in some fashion connected we are both called mrs boyce the boyces of oxfordshire ma'am alison's laugh had something of a sneer in it of nowhere that i know ma'am my husband is mr harry boyce son of colonel oliver boyce the lady fluttered her fan settled herself afresh in her chair rearranged her close-fitting lips Alison was reminded of a hen preening itself. I had heard so, ma'am, and my husband is Colonel Oliver Boyce. La, ma'am, do you mean the same? Alison cried. Mrs. Oliver Boyce gave a lifeless smile. That is why I did myself the honor of giving you my confidence, ma'am. I think there are not two Colonel Oliver Boyces the younger son of one of the oxfordshire family oh lud how should i know i never looked into the grandfathers no ma'am the tone was patronizing contempt you might have been the wiser of it colonel oliver boyce he has taken the title lately when i knew him he was something in the service of the duke of marlborough oh a fine man to the eye ma'am and very splendid in his talk why that's his likeness alison laughed and what then ma'am have you come seeking the colonel he is the lord knows where or is it faith you don't tell me harry is your son no ma'am at least i was spared bearing children oh why give you joy if you would have it so but how can i serve you maybe your colonel is not my colonel after all at least he and harry are father and son heartily enough It may be so, ma'am, said the lady heavily, and here Harry came in. Alison looked up laughing and then frowned. Harry would not ever dress fine. His wig was still unfashionably small. He wore some sombre stuff, and to her eye, as she said, looked like a mole. Here's Mr. Boyce, ma'am, Harry, Mrs. Oliver Boyce, who is come to say that you never had father nor mother. "'Your obliged servant, ma'am,' Harry opened his eyes. "'Pray, has my father married again?' "'You'll find, sir, that Colonel Boyce has only been married once.' "'If you please, ma'am,' said Harry blandly. "'Pray, are you blaming him?' Or a gesture expressed his complete ignorance of what she was doing. The lady seemed to force herself to laugh. "'Oh, fie, sir! Sure it is not for me to blame him.' "'No, ma'am?' harry was first interrogative then acquiescent no ma'am i wonder if you could give me the colonel's direction i sir you are pleased to amuse yourself i vow ma'am i was never less amused colonel boyce was pleased to leave me five years ago i have not forgotten it if you have faith this is very distressing harry protested in bewilderment but you do me injustice ma'am i have forgotten "'Nothing about my father, for I never knew anything. "'As you please, sir,' the lady drawled. "'I was talking, by your leave, to Mrs. Boyce.' "'Oh, ma'am, a hundred pardons.' Harry took himself off in a hurry. His chief emotion over the lady seems to have been satisfaction that she wanted nothing to do with him. As for her story of being his father's deserted wife, he had long supposed his father capable of anything as for the lady herself he wrote her down a tiresome busybody and perhaps he was not far wrong alison too was much of the same opinion but it was unfortunately hampered by a natural curiosity to hear what the lady could tell about the mystery of harry and his father you had something to say to me ma'am i count it my duty ma'am to give you warning of colonel boyce alison stood up duty i know nothing of your duty ma'am but i think it is mine not to listen to you i protest i should have said the same the lady drawled i too had spirit once child that was before i suffered i would i had known you earlier and yet perhaps i may do something to save you even now i cannot tell how ma'am listen if you please the lady said dramatically I was something of an heiress, as you are, and maybe something of a toast, too. The worse for me. I chose to believe it was not only my money which brought Oliver Boyce upon me. He took all I could give him, and very soon gave me nothing, not even common courtesy. When I began to be careful, he began to be brutal. But for my family, I told you that Sir Gilbert Heathcote was my uncle. He would have stripped me of every penny when they stepped in to save me some rag of my fortune my good mr boyce left me i have never a word from him since pray child take warning if it is so i am sorry for it said alison coldly i believe i hear company she began to walk to the outer room behind her as for your harry boyce said the lady oh i make no doubt he's oliver's son though certainly he is none of mine alison made as if she did not hear and she was spared more by the coming of some of her guests the card tables filled there was no more danger of being private with mrs oliver boyce indeed the lady as if she had done all she wanted took her leave early she was affectionate about it for which alison liked her none the better through most of that evening amid the flutter of cards and the clatter Spedillo! on my life what it's basto is it did you hear of mrs prue she'll not show for a month we win the crdeel Mum. they say the duchess and she pulled caps alison was telling herself over and over that the creature was a detestable low thing who only wanted to make mischief It should, you think, have needed no effort to believe that, but the obvious malice had power to annoy a mind already discontented. Alison could not stop wondering what the mystery was about Harry's birth and his father. Perhaps Harry knew more than the little he professed. Perhaps he was not the careless, indolent fellow he chose to seem, but something more cunning and less lofty what if he were just such another as the woman painted his father a fellow on the hunt for an heiress who once he had her and her money cared no more about her to be sure there was some evidence of that since they had come to town he was always off by himself if she wanted him with her she had to plead and plague him a proud office why that very night monsieur did not please to appear at the card-tables he was too fine for her and her company so she fretted and rubbed the poison in and naturally she fared ill at the card-table her cards were bad and she made the worst of them she was not a good loser and it was a wife much inflamed who when her guests were gone sought out her husband Harry sat with Mrs. Weston, who was at Needlework, and, if Alison had been able to see, looked very benign, but it was he who demanded all the wife's angry eyes. His wig was on the table beside him, he had a pipe in his mouth, he was lolling in the deeps of a chair and smiling to himself over a book. You might be in an alehouse, you look so slovenly. Harry grinned up at her oh madame wife hasn't been winning to-night tell me all about it faugh your pipe alison coughed for god's sake keep it to the tavern it's enough that you reek of it without making my house reek too harry gave a great sigh and put the pipe down we were so comfortable till you came i'm glad to see you dear i was comfortable till you came alison snapped pray mother weston said harry forgive our public caresses we have not long been married alison looked ice at him weston dear would you leave us i have something to say to harry harry opened his eyes mrs weston looked at her anxiously bade them a nervous good night and hurried out harry who was your mother alison stood stern over the lolling husband egad what's this have you been brooding over your bony friend Who is she she says she is your father's wife and says he left her well if she is his wife i wager he did leave her faith she was made to be deserted what do you know of her nothing by the grace of god why should i if my father got drunk and married her he would not want to talk about it when he was sober i despise you when you talk so alison cried and yet you listened to her child She says that he took all her money before he left her. Oh, pray, why has she so much to say, and to you? She wanted to warn me against Colonel Boyce, and against his son, I think. And you are so kind as to listen. Egad, ma'am, I'm obliged to you. Well, now you know what to do. You have the money, and I have none. Pray, lock up your purse tonight. You are childish.' said alison with lofty scorn harry who was your mother oh i thought your kind friend told you i had none i dare say it's as true as the rest you don't know i never saw her she said alison hesitated oh lord don't be squeamish now she said your father had never been married except to her odzo that is what you had to tell me i am a bastard am i he laughed and turned in his chair give you good night madame wife harry oh god save you he took up his pipe i am no company for you and by god you are no company for me she looked at him a moment hesitated went slowly out chapter sixteen the affair of sir george the eruption of mrs oliver boyce could not easily have been foretold that the past life of colonel boyce was likely to throw shadows over his son harry might have considered but the nature of the woman and her care and the successful opportunity of her malice were hardly to be calculated there is less excuse for him in the affair of sir george anvil given the conditions of that hasty marriage and the state into which it had brought them and the society about them some sir george or other was a natural consequence the ugly quarrel which mrs oliver boyce had made for them was never composed when they met again in the morning they were coldly and haughtily civil and so they chose to remain mrs weston not being blind saw that something was amiss and tried with blundering motherly affection to push them back into one another's arms she hardened as is usual their hostility each was mortally afraid of weakening each suspected the other at once of softness and of guile and so held aloof and fed upon scorn they had both enough of that pride of sex which gives one pleasure in the sufferings of the other and of course the quarrel was poisoned with a sordid taint the colder the haughtier harry was the more alison inclined to believe that he had wanted nothing of her but her money the haughtier the colder alison was the more harry raged against her for a mean creature who desired to make him feel his dependence upon her money-bags in himself sir george anvil was of no importance if harry had been comfortable He could never have taken the trouble to be angry over the man. It is certain that Alison never thought him worth any thought of hers, still less worth one finger's surrender. And yet Sir George contrived to be disastrous to the pair of them. That was not, as Lady Mary Wortley Montague said of him in another matter, altogether his fault the fool has excuses quoth she which others have not he is so great a fool that you hardly believe his folly is but folly sir george was a man born without impulse or capacity for anything lady mary who was fond of using him for her wit made a grammarian's jest on him the creatures an anomaly active in form passive in meaning He was bred in a society which made it a fashion to be vicious. He affected to follow the fashion. If vice must needs be something active, or at least something of the will, Sir George Anvil must escape punishment, but he was to a wholesome taste more offensive than sinners who did more damage. It was Harry's worst blunder in the affair that he treated Alison as if she did not feel that sir george knew no other way of passing his life than in dangling about women he was generally tolerated as a butt and being impervious to contempt supposed that his fascinations procured him immunity he did it must be reckoned the first of his two accomplishments he did know a pretty woman from a plain one and therefore as soon as he knew alison much reported to her his other accomplishment was to dress well he was lean and had an air of languor which was not affected but a natural lack of vigour it may be believed that alison tolerated him because he made a not disagreeable decoration to her rooms but at this era she was cynical and perhaps told herself that sir george was as good a man as another he began to come at hours when she could be found alone and was sometimes admitted so harry caught him once or twice was ironically obsequious to him which sir george took for solemn earnest and afterwards amused himself by congratulating mrs allison on the power of her charms odds fish i can't tell where you'll stop ma'am you'll have a corpse on his knees to you net maybe the corpse of a lord I vow I'm proud of you, which was not likely to get the door shut on Sir George. So that dangling gentleman became convinced that Alison was yielding to his embraces. He was, in a limp way, gratified. A devilish fine woman, to be sure. She might be a trifle exhausting to a man of ton, but what would you? Women were greedy and must be satisfied with what one could spare them and it was pleasant to see the pretty creatures pining. He would lure Madame on with a few tidbits. In this kindly mood he went to her on a wet April day, when Alison was fretting for a wild walk, or a wilder ride in wind and rain. But even to herself she would not confess that she was tired of the town. It would have assimilated her to Harry. Sir George sat himself down by Alison's side, simpered at her, sniffed, put his thin hands on his thin knees, and ogled them. Alison held out to him a cup of tea. He arranged his rings before he took it, and then again simpered at her. After some humming and hawing, "'Do you go to the play to-night, ma'am?' he drawled. "'What play is it? Ah, some cursed play or other.' said sir george and exhausted by that effort relapsed for a while into silence alison did not help him out it is possible that she was wondering how a creature so vapid could go on existing she looked sir george over with an odd close inspection sir george who had some perceptions became aware of it and according to his nature misunderstood it he sniffed again and pray ma'am what perfume do you use alison stared at him i am delicate in such things said he and smelt his own handkerchief alison hesitated between disgust and amusement to be sure the creature was such a fool that it was not fair to think of him save as a buffoon so unfortunately she chose amusement oh i vow sir george your delicacy is rare she laughed The poor creature took it for a compliment. He leered at her. But you are exquisite, my Indemora. Who? It's an amorous lady in a play, Sir George explained. Pretty creature. He patted Alison's arm and leaned upon her to kiss her neck. She was so surprised that his lips had almost time to reach her. Lord, sir, are you mad? she cried as she thrust him off pretty creature sir george giggled and clung to her your carriage is at the door sir george harry stood over them his face was as much a mask as ever his voice placid alison stared up and stood to face him with a lowering brow he did not appear to see her sir george shook down his ruffles carriage what do you mean says he i had had no carriage this year i came in a hackney coach harry turned away from him and opened the door eh oh stop me sir george giggled and got to his feet madame you're eternally devoted he went out with a strut waving his scented handkerchief in the direction of harry then alison spoke her eyes were furious you oh you boor how dare you egad that's very good harry laughed she beat her foot on the floor oh you are not to be born to make a noise of it to make a scandal of me and that that creature to be sure i came untimely well ma'am if you wanted to be quiet about it i had rather it made a noise my god she was white you dare say that to me be careful harry pray ma'am no heroics i warn you there are things i'll not bear is it possible harry sneered she swept past him and away chapter seventeen return of mr waverton it seems that years afterwards harry and alison were afflicted with a dreary and remorseful wonder at these wars both as they grew older had something of a turn for moralizing and in their copious letters to their several children is evidence of much penitence and puzzling over the disasters of their youth each plainly took all the blame each is eloquent about the sins of pride and hardness harry preaches the duty of trust alison the folly of easy intimacies both of them in those latter days when they could calmly estimate what they had lost still wondered with a gloomy scorn how they had come to let the ugly ridiculous affair of sir george set them against each other you find them both trying to recall or guess what exactly it was that in the time of crisis they felt and believed when it was all part of their history harry could hardly persuade himself that ever he had fancied alison untrue even disloyal or alison believed that she had stormed against him for driving out of the house a man who had been impudent to her yet it is not to be doubted that harry did let suspicions of her honesty poison him he could not at the worst of his anger believed that she would play false with such a husk of a fop but he told himself that she wanted to make the fellow into a waiting gentleman a servant and a toy at once a thing more nauseous than a lover and alison though at the back of her brain she was aware that harry had excuse for what he had done raged the more against him for the intolerable things he had said. His suspicions made her despise him. For his assumption of authority, she hated him. There was almost from the first the usual sage and kindly friends to tell them that it was all a misunderstanding, that they had only to be frank with each other and commonly reasonable, and there would be no quarrel left. But it is doubtful whether this sagacious advice could have done them much good if they had taken it talk things over like rational creatures was as usual the prescription but if they had really been rational they would only have come to the conclusion that they ought not to be married the force of their passion to be sure was real enough and still moved in them to hold them together they had nothing else there was no consciousness of other need no longing for a common life no desire to help or give if they had been most calmly wise and wisely calm in a dozen conversations they would but have made this all the clearer still it is true as the sagacious friends guessed that they did not try to compose the quarrel each was by far too proud harry was pleased to consider that he had done his duty by a flighty wife and would take no more account of her unless she were penitent or provoked him again alison reckoning herself meanly insulted was resolved that he could never again be more than an unwelcome guest in her house they were to be sure ridiculous in private they avoided each other in public they continued to meet for each was too proud to confess to the world the failure of their marriage You imagine how poor Mrs. Weston enjoyed life in an icy atmosphere, the temperature of which she was not permitted to notice. Such were their relations when the final blow fell upon them. They dined late in the Lincoln Inn fields. It was as much as six o'clock, and they were still at table, as jovial as usual. The butler came to Alison with an elaborate whispering. Pray him come up she said aloud and looked defiance down the table at harry it is mr waverton lord lord is he still alive harry grinned that's heroic back from france is colonel boyce come back mrs weston cried i know nothing of colonel boyce said allison coldly you couldn't please him better harry laughed dear Geoffrey, i wonder if he knows anything well it would be a new experience Mr. Waverton came. He was more stately than ever. Browner also, but not changed otherwise. His large and handsome face affected all the old melancholy. "'Oh, Mr. Waverton,' Harry grinned, "'you do honour me. Pray let me present you to my poor wife.' Geoffrey took no notice of him. "'Madam, you're obedient.' He bowed to Alison. "'I beg leave to have some speech with you. "'There's still some dinner.' draw up a chair said harry i did not come to dine sir oh that's a sad stomach of yours a glass of wine then i do not take wine with you mr boyce i wonder if you have made a mistake for you have come into my house i will answer for all my mistakes sir with hearty goodwill egad you'll be busy oh be silent alison cried you are welcome mr waverton how can i serve you i understand the gentleman's desire to hurry me into a quarrel ma'am be sure that i shall not permit it harry laughed disagreeably it's very well sir but i choose first that you should listen to what i have to say listen I, oh lord is it a poem mr waverton flushed you are impertinent sir it shall not serve you i intend that madame shall know the truth of your father's treachery and yours harry stood up are we to stay for more of this ma'am i shall stay alison said you remark the gentleman's impatience to silence me ma'am i promise you that i shall tell you nothing which he or any man can deny it's a dull tale then harry muttered i think it will excite you enough ma'am you are advised that I went to France with Colonel Boyce. The office which he offered me was to negotiate with Prince James. This I undertook readily, for to his party my family hath ever had an inclination, nay, an affection, and I saw in the affair duties of honor and moment. To the greater glory of Geoffrey, first Duke of Waverton, whom God preserve, quoth Harry, I did not, I will avow, foresee that the thing was but a trick to take me away from my house and out of the country. Though I may regret, ma'am, he bowed magnificently to Alison, I do not even now blame myself for my blindness, for I have ever accounted it unworthy of a man of honour to fear treachery in his servants. He glared at Harry. Or weakness, ah, "'weakness in those to whom he gives his devotion. "'He made melancholy eyes at Alison. "'No more of that. "'In fine, I did not suspect "'that a fellow who was taking wages from my hand "'had plotted to rob me of what was my dearest hope, "'or that another, another, "'would surrender herself a prey to his crafty greed. "'Damn, it is a poem after all,' Harry groaned. You said you had something to tell me, sir, said Alison coldly. Nay, ma'am, be patient. I give you no reproaches. But what is, is. If it irks you that I remind you of it, do not give the blame to me. I shall blame you for being tedious by your leave, Alison yawned. Wait till all's told. Well, ma'am, I left Tetherton with Colonel Boyce, and we rode post-haste to new haven he was there joined by some half-dozen fellows low fellows to my eye this much surprised me and i took occasion to tell him so for he had given out that his was a very secret errand of marlborough's privy policy into which he would admit none but me he made out that these fellows were but messengers and escort and i permitted myself to be satisfied though i remarked that he was on familiar terms with them but that gave me little concern for i had from the first remarked in colonel boyce a coarse habit of intimacy with the vulgar ay ay you and he took to each other famously says arrych lud sir must you be so wordy alison cried you will find that every word has its import ma'am FROM SOME OF THESE FELLOWS COLONEL BOYCE LEARNED THAT THERE WAS A WARRANT OUT AGAINST HIM FOR TREASONABLE PRACTICES WITH THE PRETENDER. THIS affected HIM TO GREAT INDIGNATION IN WHICH, AS I FRANKLY TOLD HIM, I FOUND MATTER FOR BEWILDERMENT. SINCE HE WAS, AS HE PROFESSED, ABOUT TO DEAL WITH THE PRETENDER, IT WAS BUT FAIR THAT THE GOVERNMENT SHOULD ARRAIGN HIM ON THAT CHARGE over which he was pleased to laugh at me and then to explain his mirth averred that the government and in particular mr secretary st john was much more jacobite than he and so had no title to meddle with him then he said that what irked him was that they should have heard of his dealings with france which must be done secretly or fail so we went in a hurry aboard the schooner which was ready for him and crossed to dieppe landing by night beyond the town i make no doubt from his adroitness that colonel boyce hath done business in france before but of what kind i leave you to guess when you have heard all we were well furnished with horses and upon the road to paris before noon he gave out to some officers which questioned him that we were of prince james's service upon our way to st germain we rode to pontois and there as it had been planned from the first colonel boyce stayed while i rode on to the prince he dared not as he said go himself to paris for fear that some of the french officers should recognize him as marlborough's man and denounce him for a spy therefore was i to go with letters to the prince and messages which would persuade him to ride out to pontois and come to business with colonel boyce i went on then alone save that colonel boyce gave me one of his fellows to be my guide and servant and he stayed with the rest at pontois Thus far, I beg you, remark, I had no cause to apprehend treachery. Upon the face, the scheme was fair enough, and all had been done even as Colonel Boyce proposed to me in England. I will maintain myself honorably, free of any blame in the affair, against any man whomsoever. God bless you, said Harry heartily. Mr. Waverton visibly labored with a repartee. End of part five.